Welcome everyone to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. We focus on the people who are raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We also focus on how Web3 and Web2 brands are building for these audience specifically. I'm Sam Yuen from Coindesk, and as always, I'm co-hosted here with Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, I know you're in Paris right now. How's it going? I am in Paris for the Ledger Open, where they just revealed their Stacks product, which is really exciting. They had the designer of the iPod give a keynote, which was incredible yesterday. There's been some really positive reaction from enterprises, developers, and the Generation C crypto-native consumers. Yeah, I got a lot of FOMO for not being in Paris, half for the food and half just because like the event looked amazing. So props to that team for doing a great job. We're going to have a great guest today, Matt Kalish, president of DraftKings North America. DraftKings is sports betting, is fantasy sports, is kind of all things sort of passion. And I'm really interested in just the intersection of how sort of that sports and collectible world marries with Web3. And they're one of the companies doing it sort of better than anybody. So I'm super excited to hear about what Matt is bringing. But I think from a first story today, Avery, talking about sports, we're still in the middle of kind of World Cup fever, as we know. Sad to see our own American team did not make it past their round. But, you know, who is playing in this space are a lot of big brands. Coke, FIFA, Christian Ronaldo, Budweiser, all these folks are doing digital collectibles around the World Cup. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on, you know, what is it about kind of big cultural events and NFTs and especially sports, because that's kind of the theme of the show today, that make this just a marriage that feels like it works. So the World Cup is the most watched sporting event globally, and there's been a lot of talk this year around the World Cup and digital collectibles and NFTs and brand-integrated NFTs and official ones from FIFA, all of the above. And I think it's been a little bit challenging to see any major breakthrough successes in the World Cup space because there's just so much going on and because of some of the broader sort of cultural conversation around Doha, around Qatar, around sort of what's happening in the World Cup. So I know that there's been teams, there have been brands, there have been official collections on a variety of different blockchains. And I think from a consumer perspective, they've probably been bombarded with a lot of opportunities to buy World Cup digital assets. Sam, I'm curious to you, any that kind of like stick out? A lot of these teams do have their own collectibles, right? Whether it's their players or the teams themselves. And we did see that there was kind of a pop in value once a team would win a game versus those who would lose a game. And so it just made me wonder kind of the speculative market of kind of playing that arbitrage, right? If you're good enough to know that, you know, Argentina is better than X other team, you know, could you actually play that for kind of personal gain? I mean, it's a level of math and stats I can't comprehend. But that's where I started to wonder, you know, whether it's the World Cup, whether it's the Olympics, so many big brands are jumping in these spaces. What I would love to see is, Coke, who's doing something with Crypto.com for the World Cup, utilizing this as kind of just like a wide funnel strategy of how do we get more people into an ecosystem that later we can reward? So we're not actually collecting something because we think it's going to be valuable, but maybe because we are part of a club that is both, you know, we like Coke and we like soccer, that there's an opportunity there to like further think of the experiential opportunities and the media opportunities in the future. And I'm interested to see what happens with these collectibles down the road versus now. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So I'm going to brag a little bit about one of the projects that we worked on at Vayner with our partners at Anheuser-Busch, which is a Budweiser live scoreboard digital collectible that actually updates in real time based on your team and who's winning. I thought that was a really cool activation targeted to this sort of Ethereum native community available globally and did pretty well from a fan engagement and, you know, a reason to keep checking it, some new sort of technical innovation. There was a little mini game that went along with it. I think that was really fun. I think one of the challenges, though, that exists in, you know, marrying the Gen C and crypto native consumers with the broader consumer base in the world is you know, even an asset that's like 10, 20, 50, $100 might not seem like a lot in the United States, but that's a lot if you're in Brazil or if you're in Indonesia or, you know, any of these places. So I think that's one thing pricing wise that we're going to need to keep an eye on as some of these collectibles target a broader market and you really can't get more broad than the World Cup. Yeah, no, I remember at the Final Four this past year, I think it was the Knights of Degen team put together the idea that you could mint your bracket for the Final Four. But what was really interesting was as teams won or lost, those brackets that had more winning teams were being resold so that you could actually buy into a more winning bracket because they had a lot of prizing towards the top. And I thought there was a really interesting sort of gameplay for those who love the idea of kind of bracket systems or fantasy, like we'll talk with Matt later about, that that is a really interesting dynamic that I think is fascinating. The collectible market, I'm still a little like wondering where that goes in the future. I would love to see more free or very low cost mints, but that have a longer play for kind of just bringing them into an ecosystem than trying to kind of grab money because people are just passionate about their team and their sport. So for the next story I wanted to get your thoughts on and have a discussion about was, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks around Apple. And I think that, you know, while people are always talking about Apple and Elon's been going after Apple for the last couple of weeks, the idea that Apple takes a 30% cut on most sales that happen in its app store, it gets really interesting when you start to overlay that with kind of blockchain-based ecosystems. So, you know, for example, Meta has been opening up their collectibles to some of their artists on Meta who can then sell direct to their fans on Instagram. I happened to buy my first piece last week, which is a really seamless and great experience, frankly. And they're not taking any fees, but Apple is still taking 30% from the artist for that collectible, right? So on the one hand, you get, hey, maybe I have a really big Instagram following. I get to sort of sell to a very wide base. But unlike OpenSea or SuperRare or any of these other platforms that are native NFT, you don't have to pay a 30% fee to do so. Do you think that Apple is sort of getting crypto right yet? Absolutely not. I think that Coinbase actually had a really smart reply to Apple and the fact that they're, you know, expecting a 30% tax on any sort of digital asset sent, including gas fees, which if you understand how the blockchain works, you understand these transactions fees are not something that is Coinbase revenue at all. And, you know, I think Apple's enforcement of that policy shows that they either one, don't fully understand exactly how all this works, or two, are very willfully making it very challenging for these sort of crypto native companies to succeed. We've seen companies like Instagram kind of absorb that for now and play along. But I think Coinbase is the one who's like really actually sort of stood up to this policy. Well, I think that we have a lot of apps that actually don't end up coming out, right? Coinbase, I believe, had their last app blocked because of this gas fee issue. And OpenSea, for example, you can't buy and sell on OpenSea's iPhone app. And part of that, I believe, is because OpenSea is not willing to give that percentage. 
So they'd rather use the iPhone app as more of a display. Let me go find the things I want. And then when I'm at desktop, I can click connect wallet and purchase. The gas fees, you know, for those who may not know, gas fees are just the sort of transactional cost you pay to the blockchain miners to kind of validate a transaction. The idea that Apple want to cut on something that is really just a function of the system itself does feel like they're not getting it. But I also feel like Apple's moves are always intentional. I would not be surprised if somewhere in a sort of skunk works lab at Apple, they're working on some blockchain stuff that we just don't know about, you know, and they're just kind of like, let's make it a little more difficult for everybody else. And that's pure speculation, but I could see that happening. And then the final story that I just wanted to get your opinion on, Avery, was there have been 5,000 trademark applications put in this year alone for things like metaverse, cryptocurrencies, digital collectibles, digital wearables from companies. You talk to these guys every day. You know, are there 5,000 companies building or are these folks just kind of protecting their names in new sort of digital landscapes? Yeah, I can say working with a lot of companies that have filed their metaverse patents and trademarks, it's always coming from the legal team who is more in a place of protection. In many cases, though, it is coordinated as sort of a top-down company understanding and effort that, hey, this is something that we need to take seriously. So everyone from the marketing team to the legal team realizes this. I think right now it's a little bit of an insurance policy in protecting their brands in this new digital realm. But oftentimes, that's a precursor to some activations because you need your trademarks in order before you start launching anything. If you had to break it down, I'd say it's about 70% proactive protection and 30% indicative of plans in the space. Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article for Coindesk six months ago about sort of brands, both failed and successful efforts on trying to sort of protect trademark on the blockchain. You know, there's a ton of folks, for example, who are selling Squid Game NFTs or Supreme NFTs on OpenSea right now. And I think it's a lot of kind of a game of whack-a-mole right now. So I do think that there is something around staking your claim. I just wonder in the end with truly like decentralized platforms, how enforceable that is, which I guess we're going to wait to see. And, you know, honestly, I don't think there's that many lawyers who know how to play crypto, right? So even think of general counsel at a big brand. In your opinion, are they prepared to kind of go after, you know, a 23-year-old kid who happens to be minting in the Philippines? They probably are prepared to do it, but do they want to? And is the juice worth the squeeze is the question. <laughs> That's a much better point. All right. Well, right after the break, we're going to have Matt Kalish from DraftKings here, who's going to talk all about what they're working on with Rainmaker, with digital collectibles, fantasy sports, sports betting, all through the lens of Web3. So we'll see you in a minute. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. We are honored to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into your role at DraftKings? Yeah, definitely. I'm Matt Kalish. I'm one of the founders at DraftKings. And for the last, I guess, 11 years now, I've been working you know, on, I think I have the best job in the world, which is just making games for sports fans in the US, starting with fantasy sports, where you know, 10, 11 years ago, there wasn't a ton of different ways to play beyond season long. I got into, you know, DraftKings through 
just loving competitive games like poker or fantasy from a season long standpoint that were like difficult to master competitive and over the years just started to think you know there's probably like more and more ways that sports fans in US you know can predict things compete and play with their spare time so you know DraftKings launching daily fantasy sports that was kind of our first foray and you know I worked on that product with Paul Jason and an increasingly growing team of like really amazing tech people product people marketers etc at DraftKings we grew from zero to you know millions of customers playing that every year and then you know more recently in 2018 sports betting started opening up more in the US you know on a state by state basis so quickly that became a big focus started expanding into you know additional products starting with sports betting so yeah much of my career and you know my life honestly i would probably be the dream customer for draftkings like is spent just kind of like on these sort of games, just trying to devise like, what is it that people want to predict? What sort of games would a sports fan want to play or spend their time on that, you know, would be deep, engaging and, you know, not easily quickly solved. I would say that's me in a nutshell. Amazing. So DraftKings is changing the way that fans engage with sports and you've done that many times over. And DraftKings was actually, you know, when you're brainstorming who to invite onto this podcast, you were like the very top of my list because I think DraftKings is one of the most intentional and strategic sort of mainstream consumer brands. It's doing interesting things with the Web3 space. And it seems like there's a very sort of natural marriage of sports and Web3. So how did you personally get into this space? And then how did you get the rest of your team on board with what you all have been up to in DraftKings and the world of Web3 for the last, you know, 18 months plus? I got in, I would say, you know, 2020 when COVID lockdown started, I was dabbling quite a bit in sports cards and some of these different like hobbies, you know, day trading stocks, even things like that, like stuff that I was very comfortable with from childhood or from, you know, young adulthood. And come early part of 2021, you know, really what caught my eye first, I would say was NBA top shots and a couple other things like crypto punks got pointed out to me. Some of these early like exposures I had to digital collectibles actually led me to spend more time on crypto and Web3 in general. Like I was buying Ethereum really early 2021 with the intention of just like participating in, you know, NFT projects. It wasn't so much just like collecting coins and trading, you know, whatever the cool latest coin is or even something like Bitcoin or ETH that were like quite stable and established feeling like that was not really like my initial intention. I was more of a collector. I like, you know, looking through these different projects, trying to feel out like what I thought would have a popular like community, what had good energy, good vibes around it. So it was much more like very recreational, like collecting, trading. I love trading. I'm always like buying, selling everything, not so much like for profit as much as just like that's the game to me. And I mean, it's great to like be right about things and, you know, figure out a good time to buy, figure out a good time to not hold forever and sell. But, you know, I would say I've definitely like had things go down more than go up as a whole. And I do it mainly for a hobby, you know, so I really like that transactional piece. And I really like just kind of talking about projects with friends and stuff. So, you know, through 2021, I got a ton of people involved in NFTs all around me. My partners, Jason and Paul were setting up accounts, we were all buying projects, you know, just learning more about the blockchain tech, the emerging NFT space. And then 
As that applied to DraftKings, really, I think the most obvious application for NFTs gameplay. Like for us, we build fantasy games, we do sports betting, prediction games, you know, all that stuff is like an interactive game that customers play. So we viewed it as if we could build NFT driven games, you know, in fantasy that, you know, players could collect and then use their collection as utility to like compete for prizing and other things like that was really you know, the initial seed. Also, we see, I think, a decent amount of future and potential in like just the digital collectible space in general. Like the way that I talk about that typically with people is if like 10% of physical trading card, you know, dollars started going towards digital, like it would be a pretty decent seed of a good long-term sports business. And it doesn't seem that void of merit. Like there's a lot of benefits of digital collectibles. Like I've spent the last month clearing out my office from tons and tons of like physical collectibles I accrued through breaks, through like COVID, you know, all the stuff that I was buying and holding and holding. Like it takes up serious space. It's a lot to manage. It's hard to kind of like move, you know, trade, sell things. You're kind of like waiting for a card show or you're selling it to a giant commission on eBay or something like that. So I think the idea of like a digital collectible that's like much easier to manage, very easy to transact, you know, like real time almost and a global market that's always on and available to kind of look at your stuff. Like I always thought that that was a nice benefit and seemed like X number of people or like X percent of people's spend would end up ultimately going the digital way to me. So I also like that space quite a bit. Absolutely. And I think we're still in the super early days. So Kalis, you are probably one of the only like public company founders who rocks a PFP on LinkedIn. So you are yourself like a collector as well. What do you look for when you are, you know, considering different projects or programs or things to get involved with as like, you know, the consumer angle? I thought of it kind of like vibe based for the most part. Personal wise, when I'm talking about like my own personal hobbies and stuff, it's very like irreverent. I don't necessarily care about you know, if it goes well or not investment wise all of the time, I would like it to. And I don't like deliberately chase projects. I think that's I always like want to invest in something decent quality, but like don't mind being wrong. And I find it to be like kind of funny in a way if like, I don't know, some of the stuff that I bought in 2011 that like went to close to zero, you know, it's like some project that looks absolutely absurd that you would put money into it. But at the time, you know, I thought there was all this like, oh, what if it's cool? Like, what if they build up like a meme culture and like a community and people get real active around it? So I do it kind of more vibe based, more just like what I think of the feel of the project, the energy. I'm not like a big art collector person or something, but I definitely can appreciate like quality work. I mean, I think I can kind of sniff out something that is like a very low quality and just try to like avoid that in general. So that's like personal wise. And then I'm like pretty careful to not try to ever talk too, too much about, I guess, like decisions I'm making. I know the blockchain's open, but like I do worry that people would confuse me being an idiot on the internet with like actual opinions that are like from an intelligent place. So (laughs) I prefer to not like talk too much about things I'm currently doing. Maybe like retro, I'll talk about it a little bit, but like not Like, oh, I just bought this. Here's why I love this project. Like, that's a scary place for me because it come across as like a reason someone else might buy or. So you don't want to be an influencer, Matt. (laughs) What a terrible job, in my opinion. I mean, that's a rough job. Matt, first of all, thanks for being here. 
the marriage of kind of sports collectibles, Web3 seems just super native, makes a lot of sense. I know Avery and I have talked a lot about Rainmakers. would love to understand the genesis, like one, what is Rainmakers? And then kind of the genesis of how you guys decided this is how we wanted to show up in Web3. So like one of the things that I think from a DraftKings standpoint, we were starting most of our tech stack from scratch. So we were building, you know, like a kind of blockchain based marketplace to do NFT stuff, you know, starting in early 2021. It was probably April, May, we started, you know, writing the first line of code. And, you know, it's like a lot of work when you think about being a public company that's regulated that isn't going to take any chances because we're just not like in the game of jeopardizing any of the companies. Like, you know, we have a lot of gambling licenses and all this other stuff going on. And the trust of regulators is super important. And also like the trust of our customers is you know, paramount because they're not just using that one product. Like if people got like a bad experience on marketplace, that's going to carry through how they look at DraftKings from fantasy sports betting, iGaming or whatever else we do in the future. So really like 0.0 interest in like a quick in and out cash grab, like you saw from a lot of, I think, stuff going on when the market was very peaky. And that being said, like, I don't think anybody can see the future completely. So like we tried a few different projects, like we were just kind of following where the interest was from our audience. You know, one that I thought was like really compelling project was Tom Brady autograph, all these kind of like goats of their respective sports launching, you know, NFT versions of their IP, trying to map that to real life, you know, experiences and benefits, just like the type of star power that they had all the, um, you know, it was basically like the best people in every sport that you could think of. So from a collectible standpoint, I always thought that was interesting, like the rookie card of, you know, Naomi Osaka, Brady, Wayne Gretzky in NFT land, like that you could collect, hold. And, you know, if the market grew and thrived collectible sports wise digitally, then those would always be there for you on the blockchain, like you own it forever. And then the second focus we had was because we have so many like league team relationships, athlete relationships, et cetera like trying to figure out how to partner up with leagues and build games that are kind of NFT driven using league IP, player IP, you know, try to build a game that has like multiple layers to it, almost like intersects everything that our customers interested in, you know, crypto collectibles, fantasy, trading, you know, like stock trading or something. And that's kind of where Rainmakers came from, which is if you've played games like EA Sports Ultimate Team for FIFA or Madden, where you're like starting with a team, you're trying to improve it, you're using the team to compete, you can like invest in the game to whatever level you want to like improve your team faster. That's kind of how Rainmakers works, right? You like buy packs that help you grow your collection. You can trade your cards on the marketplace like 24-7 with other people, like buy cards that you think might be like helpful to you to compete better in the game or even might just grow in value. You can sell things that aren't part of your future plans, you know, and there's a ton of layers to it. It's like a fantasy sports game that yields over a million dollars in cash per week in prizes. There's all these different like missions, achievements, leaderboard programs. And then as we look at to year two, like a whole new set of customer kind of like decision points come up, such as like burning cards from year one in order to earn year two cards, or you can compete for prizing using prior year in order to win like more cards from the current year collection and things like that. 
So we're really just trying to like keep the game quite deep, quite complex, try to really marry all of these areas that, you know, trading, collectibles, fantasy, try to like really marry all of them in a way that's like super engaging and with like a multi-year horizon in mind. So I would say that's probably like the biggest thing is like what we do at DraftKings is going to be coming from a place of like we're building a game that we expect to be around five, 10, whatever years from now. And so like everything we do has that in mind of you know, like what we do now has to leave a positive impression so that in the future, the game continues to grow and thrive and have good sentiment. So it feels like it's a kind of Magic the Gathering meets fantasy sports in some respect, right? Like you can assemble better teams just for my own interest and maybe for the audience, how much are the cards, the teams also related to live stats? And therefore, is that part of kind of that fantasy world? Or is it more like, is the game self-contained without needing information and data from the outside world? No, the fantasy game utility, like it's all based on the real world. Say it started the season and you didn't know that like Geno Smith was going to have a good year. And you thought he was probably like the 30th best quarterback. He turned out to be pretty good. Like what was happening was customers at the start of the year were opening packs. They could collect, you know, like the Geno Smith cards early as he had a better and better season. The value just increases because they're competing with those cards every single week of the season for a million dollars plus in prizing experiences and other things. And so to the extent that you have people doing well on the field every week, you're yielding prizes constantly. You know, every week somebody's won a hundred thousand dollar top prize. Actually, just got a message from one of like my oldest friends, somebody like very old in the kind of fantasy space named Cal Spears. He had this company, Roto Grinders, that was the big forum for daily fantasy way, way back when we launched. And he just like texted me out of the blue that he won the hundred K this week, first prize, you know, for the Rainmakers contest. So anyway, it's like every week people who have the top scoring lineups are yielding prizes, you know, and because you own the NFT every week, you can use those same athletes over and over again. So like the people who are doing the best tend to yield the most prizes in the fantasy contest. But then there's also other ways to earn. Like we have leaderboard programs that more reward just like breadth of your collection. We've had a ton of different like collection missions, you know, completion of certain tasks around collection yield prizing. And then there's always this idea of like looking ahead to the future years where your cards are going to continue to have future utility next season, the season after, et cetera. And so even if you kind of like missed the boat this year and your athletes didn't kind of like perform as well as you hoped, you always have the potential that like in the future that they help you out more, you know? So all of that is really just like part of the complexity of the game. You all have, I think, done an incredible job converting your existing community to like sort of engage in this in a way that feels natural to them as you've also been sort of attracting more of a Web3 native crowd. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the collabs you've done, you know, both things like Friends League and Deadfellas and what inspires some of those collabs and what do you think like works about that type of a setup and the merging of those two audiences? Yeah, we've worked with a bunch of like interesting projects or people like V Friends and Gary Vaynerchuk. We did some early, like even pre-launch pack breaks, talking about the NFT space, the V Friends leagues where people were winning, you know, like V Friends Series One or Series Two NFTs, lots of experiences with Gary and whatever. We applied that to a few other projects like Steve Aoki, for example. We were having like winners from Rainmakers go into like the DJ booth in Vegas for shows with Steve. 
or like yield prizing from his projects from NFT land. And then from like a creative or art standpoint, that was also a really like wide open field for us. We were minting tons of these player cards that people were opening in packs. And so applying the like art direction, the creative from some of our favorite projects was like a way to put that Web3 flavor into the Rainmakers cards. So like we zombified a bunch of NFL players using the dead fellas look and feel and did like a drop with dead fellas that had whatever it was like Chase Claypool, Lamar Jackson, like all these people's like really good, you know, players zombified. A couple other like interesting ones to come as well, like throughout the season, like we have a couple more collaboration drops coming. It's all part of like our supply that we've already told customers was going to exist in the game, but it was really just a way to make the collectible more special to have like the art be a little bit more connecting to certain communities that are out there, like in Web3, give some specific utility to those projects. I guess the other thing is week three, week 13 of football, we bought a ton of NFTs off the market and we were like giving them out as prizing in the contests. So everything from like, crypto punks and bored apes to, you know, alien friends, like you name it. I was joking that we were like the first company to buy dick butts and put them on our corporate like account. And so that's a fun one if you're the CFO and you're like having to explain why there's crypto dick butts on your like, balance sheet. So yeah, it was pretty amazing, honestly. Like not a lot of companies I think are out there like buying, holding, rewarding, like crypto, never mind NFT projects like that. So it was something we tried to make look easy, but behind the scenes, it's pretty tough. I mean, when you're like a regulated public company, you're doing like real financials every quarter, you have like real governance, real process around like, you know, money and finance and all of that. So all of this is stuff that we kind of built out, whether it's like tech process, whatever, like to lay foundation. So the future could just be like better and better and nicer, you know? Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? A lot of the people listening to this are marketers at big brands, and even having a ledger, being able to operate in crypto is still challenging for a lot of those big companies. I would venture to say the vast majority of them. Can you tell a little bit about like that journey? You're obviously working at a really senior level, but what do you think sort of Fortune 500 executives and marketers need to know about getting yourself set up to operate in this capacity? I think it's like first kind of understanding like based on your specific audience, your customer, everything we do has a customer in mind. It's like the skin in the game sports fan. The people that aren't watching sports for no reason, it's like they want to predict, they want to compete, they want something on the line or like stand to win something for the most part. They tend to have like a very broad set of like interest in anything live going on because they want to predict, they want to whatever, you know? And that audience, like just by knowing it really well, help you devise the strategy. So I'd say like start by really understanding your audience. If that means like getting out there in the community more, meeting more customers, doing more research, like primary research, really like specific and targeted. I think that's a great start to get your head around like what's even like a sensical strategy. And for us, it was like our customers, when they're not on platform on DraftKings, they're trading stocks, they're trading crypto, they're collecting sports cards, NFTs, whatever, digital and physical type of assets, like what I would consider alt investments or whatever. A lot of them are playing like season long fantasy with groups of friends. Yeah. So like when you understand off platform and on platform, like what the behaviors are, it helps you like round out 
okay, what is this new blockchain tech and Web3 tech like add to the experience that we could provide? And like, I think that's really the starting point is like trying to understand how it fits in from a like really specific standpoint of who you're trying to connect with. Because a lot of people are going to look at any project and think it's like really terrible, you know, <laughs> like the wrong audience will look at it and think like, what is this person like building? Why? It makes no sense. And like, you just want it to make sense for your audience. You know, you want them to understand like, oh, yeah, I get why, you know, DraftKings is building what they are, like makes sense to me as a customer, you know, <laughs> as a way to extend the brand. So I'd say like that's the real like starting point. The gaming industry saw a ton of backlash, right? The core video gaming industry, once they started to talk about NFTs. Now you guys are a 10 year old company. You have clients and customers who have been there way before NFTs were in the social sort of the cultural zeitgeist. Did you find any of that backlash from any of your core audience about, you know, getting into the, the digital collectible space? Or to your point, like were they embracing it because they were already dabbling? No, I mean, like, even within core audience, you still have people that the product's not necessarily for them, you know, and that's okay. Like, when you have millions of customers active on the platform every year, it's just not that, like, homogenous where everybody would agree that something is, like, a good game for them. Even, like, fantasy versus sports betting, we have some people that are playing both. Like, I would say most people consider both to be great products for them, but, like, some people are just, like, I'm never researching specific players, stats. That sounds like spreadsheets. That sounds math. I want to just like pick who's going to win the game in the sports book or the other way around. Like, I don't feel like the sports book has enough like strategy and skill. And I want to like kind of be in the fantasy game and use my brain to build the best lineup or whatever. On each side of the fence of people looking at the other product, thinking that it's like ridiculous or stupid or whatever. On everything we do, and especially NFTs, I've gotten like a tremendous amount of like super negative energy directed towards me of like, even like stuff that's just crazy, like scam or like rug pull or whatever stuff that's just like, hey, man, it's just a game. Like it's a card game of fantasy that we're building. It's nothing crazy. Like, but like people just connect NFT with that X percent of the audience. You know, it's like, it's a scam. What are you doing? Like waste of time. And then, you know, the other end is like some of the most positive feedback to same thing. It's like this game perfectly marries everything I care about. It's going to be like the biggest game ever. And like, I can't believe I'm one of the first people who like found it. And like, I have all these Genesis cards and I'm like super bullish and whatever. So I don't know, I guess like over the years, you just kind of become much more like never really any of that like never really factors into like up or down feeling too, too much. And you just kind of like understand where it's coming from, which is everybody's not going to like it. Like you can't build something for everyone to like, you know, it's just impossible. You have to have a certain idea of like, who do you want to like it? Fantasy sports to me, feels like such a marriage to the NFT mindset, because I think there is the idea of collecting the predictive nature, right? I mean, you were an early investor in a bunch of NFTs, a bunch of them probably went to zero, a bunch of them made you some money, which is very similar to like when a rookie comes out and you're like, am I going to put my eggs in the basket of a rookie and are they going to perform this year? So it seems like there's a lot of like that marriage. I guess I just wonder for, you know, again, strategically, as people think about having to build a multi-year ecosystem around Web3, you guys have to think about it almost more than anybody. You know, you have folks who have careers that could be years, sometimes decade long. 
you know, is there a vision around how these collectibles age over time, you know, and how that gameplay comes out? Yeah, like there's a couple layers to that. But as a sports company person on a personal level, like most of what I collect is actually like TCG cards, stuff like um, Flesh and Blood was a game I had like one of the biggest collections, period, like in the world, literally, probably top three magic, whatever, like all these games that are like non-sports card collectible, that's a bigger percent of my like physical collection than sports cards. And I didn't like really know why for a bit. And when I thought about it more, I think it really just came down to like the gameplay utility, for lack of a better word. I was like, it's really nice that these cards are more than just a pure collectible, but it is Like some of the TCG cards have like amazing art, like unbelievable creative work. But like there's the game. It's like an active game that people are really playing. They're really going to like local card stores. They're really going to tournaments. They're competing online. They know the cards, the stats inside and out. There's like a clear hierarchy of like set value, whatever. The grading aspect where there's like populations of sometimes like extremely scarce, high grade old cards that are like super coveted but like they're part of a real game so like as i thought about it more i think there's something pretty major to the idea of like collectible but also like everybody knows these cards because they're playing the game and sports cards are just to me nostalgic it almost brings me back to my childhood it's the nostalgia it's like oh my god i got the shack rookie or the whatever like stuff i was getting when i was a kid and Applying that to today where like I have a season tickets to the Celtics. So I have like Jason Tatum stuff or Jalen Brown and it makes me feel like a better fan or like more connected with the team. But there's like nothing really that it's not like a utility, right? I can't like compete with those cards. That was like kind of how I thought about, I guess, the like when you compared Rainmakers to Magic, like I do that all the time inside the company. It's like because of the utility around playing the game. You know, that I think magic's actually a better comparison than trading cards in a lot of ways from sports, you know? Okay, Kayla, so let's shift gears a little bit. What do you see that you think a lot of like big businesses and big companies and executives and marketers are missing? Like, what do you see about this space that's interesting? And why are you thinking about building Rainmakers year over year? Well, I think it's something that our company can do really well. Like the reason why we didn't create a like, secondary marketplace for physical sports cards but rainmakers was interesting is because we're a tech company that is like a hundred percent of our business is digital through our apps so like we just have like giant warehouse like infrastructure to deal with tons of physical what you know so it's like even though our audience was doing that off platform it like didn't connect well with our core competency enough to really like merit putting a ton of focus there and in the case of like digital, I mean, that's just like what we do best. We build tech, we build, you know, creative, we are good at marketing, good at CRM, like the stuff that we do best, good at game design. Like it was the right moment and the right sort of like new technology to not get left behind. And we were never looking at it. Like if you look at the decks from when we first started working on Marketplace, what was mentioned a lot was like, there's definitely going to be a crypto winter. There's definitely going to be like NFT, you know, 99% go to zero. Gary Vaynerchuk and I on our podcast talk about it all the time. It's like, if you go back a year, you know, that stuff like will happen. There's going to be a bear market. And that being said, like when you're building for 5, 10, 
15 years, like a tech stack that's going to help you like apply that tech to a bunch of different things that your customers are doing, like less scary to worry about, like, is this a fad market or like, will there be a bear market ever? So I don't know if I'd say like missing, but I think some companies maybe are too dismissive because of the high level, like NFT equals scam or like rug pull or they see some of these like failures of big companies and they're like, I don't want any association with that. And I think they're thinking about the content or the product more than the tech and like what the tech could bring to their organization or like how to apply the tech to like a problem that they're trying to solve as a company just because of being too dismissive, you know? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, what you just talked about with CRM and marketing and digital capabilities is something that's on every CMO's mind, right? Like as we move to a world that's increasingly digital, like not just collectors, but kids these days are, you know, valuing digital assets, starting to understand digital currency. I think you guys are setting yourself up in a really smart way. So Kalish, one of our final questions here is, what do you think about the metaverse? Is that a place that you are exploring for your company? What's your hot takes on that? I guess two things. When you hear like, we are renaming our company to Meta and investing in like a loss leader, kind of like whatever hundreds of millions of dollars investment before anything like shows up from it type of thing. Like that's not at all how DraftKings is thinking. Like we are not, it's not like a big giant R&D shop where we're like, let's build like a virtual universe for stuff or whatever. <laughs> like not at all. We don't feel like we have to invent everything for the first time. We don't feel like really we have to do anything other than keep a really good pulse on our audience. And like when something becomes prominent in their life, we want to be able to extend the brand into those areas over time, right? And when I think about metaverse, like the first thing that come to mind for me is like people are already spending tons of their time on the internet digitally. Relationships are heavily like social media. Sometimes you have like an internet friend, you don't even know who they are in real life and you talk to them for an hour a day. Like some of those experiences have been there for decades. Like I was playing World of Warcraft in college in 2000 when I graduated, like, yeah, you're talking to friends on there that you'll never meet them in real life, you know? And you're like, this is my virtual person. You're running around trying to make it better. Or um, like internet poker. I played a ton of internet poker, million friends, all digital. So I think like the way people interface with tech and make connections and everything, it doesn't have to necessarily be this kind of like vision of my like avatar running through digital world at all. I think it's really just meant to say, like, how are people spending their time digitally looking at a device, connecting with others? And by that measure, DraftKings already has a pretty sick metaverse, like millions of people interacting that way every single month. So I think like building on that kind of like what we already do best, like the interface where people can kind of connect through the games we build, that's really like our focus. And I don't think you could expect any kind of like crazy investment or like vision to pop up aside from that, you know, I don't think we're like that speculative. The thing that I take away is one that, you know, I think a lot of businesses are trying to figure out what they should be doing in Web3. And I think you focus on the things that you guys do really well, and then put the Web3 layer on top of it, and are succeeding, frankly, more than a lot of them are, because I think you haven't had to change your customer's behavior. You just said, how can we augment it? And how can we amplify it. So I just want to thank you for spending the time with us on that. Any final words, things we should know before we uh, let you go? Nope. I mean, I hope everyone's doing well, holding up well. And I know the markets aren't always like so pleasant to look at these days in the bear cycles and everything. And 
it's kind of like a really amazing time to be building anything, I think, in the space because the merit of what you're doing has to be like so tremendous to pop and to stand out. So to anybody who's like working on projects right now that are putting their head down and sticking it out and working through it, often to like no gratification at all or like what will be very delayed gratification. Like I've not only just like that firsthand experience, but like also just like tremendous admiration for everyone doing that. And I've talked to a lot of really cool, like, you know, tech that's being built now that I think will be like a big part of people's lives in 2020, like six, but not maybe like for the next year. The next year, people will probably be like, you know, dismissing you immediately. So anybody who's like working on that kind of stuff, I just like tremendous admiration. And I hope people keep going and keep investing and that doesn't mean like throw infinite dollars at something, but like you're putting your time, your brain power, whatever resources you have to try to like move the ball forward during a time where that's not so easy. So yeah, keep that up, I would say to everyone who's working on projects right now. And I'm going to add on that if you like podcasts, you should check out Props and Drops starring Matt and Gary. They have an awesome podcast that they put together. So you, people should go check it out. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. So Avery, I mean, just a fascinating conversation. I think Matt brings so much to the table, you know, and you've said this to me a million times, but just the fact that like they're really delivering in the space where a lot of people are still just starting to build, I thought was just really good to see how folks have been activating on their ideas. What were your top takeaways there? I think my top takeaways are one, there's a native fit between fantasy sports and Web3. This idea of kind of betting, of collecting, of trading is a behavior that already exists. So it makes a lot of sense. And second, I love what Matt talked about around DraftKings capabilities as a company. The fact that this is something that they're already good at. They're good at digital marketing. They're good at CRM. They're good at building product experiences for the digital world. That makes a lot of sense innately. And then last, just you know, hearing a little bit about some of the mixed sentiment that we all know happens in this world of crypto, even being directed at really senior executives at big companies. You know, I think that it's interesting to see such a commitment even in the face of that, as we see with many types of new emerging technology. The early years are not always the easiest ones. 100%. I think the two things that stood out for me was one, he mentioned this multiple times, but being a public company and still going forward in your Web3, knowing that you know, the things that you're building are going to come under scrutiny and not shying away from that, I think is a great lesson that we can take away, which is that there are ways to figure it out that your CFO and your shareholders will be comfortable with. And especially if it fits what your brand does and it drives revenue. The second thing, and you hit it and he hit it over and over again, and it just really stands out, which is don't try to be what you're not in Web3. And I think that's really important. The fact that they're not saying, oh, now let's create a Web3 enabled NFC chipped IRL sports marketplace, because that's not who we are, even though there's a lot of folks trying to build that. But no, let's just take what we're doing and see if there's a way to put it on chain and create more and more value for our users seems to be a very simple insight. And yet when we see a lot of brands Web3 strategy, they seem to be veering from their core. And I think that's, you know, was such a good reminder, which is don't do it different, just utilize the tool set and do it better. With that, we're going to wrap up today's show. Avery, thank you so much. As always, you're incredible. Thank you for bringing Matt on the show. And I'm just excited for next week. Any last words from you? No, but we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you all want us to feature any special guests, any folks that you think we should consider bringing on to Gen C, we'd love to hear it. Absolutely. Take care. Mm-hmm.